remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who, was made, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Our Father in heaven, we, through Jesus Christ, ask that you will bless your word here with us here in the hall and with our children in the other room. We ask for this in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're coming back again this morning to our study of this paragraph, which <clears throat> it's a paragraph all about inclusion and all about reconciliation. As I said last time, these verses are biblical proof that the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the solution to any sort of relational crisis in the world. We think of the crisis, the arguably widening crisis in the Middle East. Jesus Christ is the solution to that situation. He's the answer to every situation where the core issue or the core problem is relational, where for one reason or another, but there's been a coming apart. And now two parties, at least two parties, are opposed to one another. What or who can truly bring peace to them and reconcile them and unite them in mutual love and respect? You find it in Jesus Christ. He is the peacemaker. We saw last time how from verse 21 through to 22, Paul is explaining the theology behind how those who are not Jews, like you and I, I'm assuming we're all not Jews. Is anybody here a Jew from a Jewish background, just so I don't get anything wrong here? We're all Gentiles. Us Gentiles. <clears throat> we Gentiles can now become part of God's covenant people. Historically, salvation came through Israel. That's what Jesus told the woman at the well, woman at the well at Sakar in John 4, 22. The salvation comes from the Jews. Paul describes that beautifully in those opening verses of Romans 9. Theirs, he says, the Jewish people, theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them 
is trace the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul also writes in Romans 3 verse 2 of how the Jews have been entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, they alone were guardians of this special revelation from God. Psalm 103 tells us that how uh, Moses brought the law of God to the people, to the people of Israel. Of all the communities of the world, they alone were given the gospel of saving grace. They alone were viewed and treated by God as his people. But what Paul shows us, and we have seen already, is that we, through faith in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, we, Gentiles, can belong to the family of God. Through the person of Jesus, we can experience and enjoy inclusion in this new community of God's people of whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, but this new international community of God's people called the church. The church. And so verses 11 to 22 is the story of this inclusion, this reconciliation. There are three parts to it. We've uh, looked at the first part uh, last time those five ways that Paul describes the relationship of Gentiles to Israel prior to them coming to faith in Christ. You see that in verse 12. I'm not going to read them out for the sake of time, but those were five implications of them and us not being Jewish. The uncircumcised, as Paul nicely labels them. But then in verse 13, you have our present position in Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, we opened with a, from, from Hebrews. We can now have the confidence to draw near to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is for everybody, for every believer, whatever your background but through faith in Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, we come to God through him and we are included in this family of God. We're going to look at those terms that Paul uses to describe this new community of God's people. We'll look at those next week. But we're included. It's a wonderful thing to be included, isn't it? It's a horrible thing to be excluded. If you're a pupil, to be excluded from school, it's horrible. To be excluded from a, from a membership, it's awful. But if you're a believer, you're included now and forevermore through the Lord Jesus Christ. We left off that point last week looking at what Jesus has secured for us through his death on Calvary's cross. And do you remember how we're told twice there, verse 11 and in verse 12, to remember this. We're to remember how we once were, those five implications we looked at last time. We mustn't forget this. Why? Because then we would be reminded of what God has done for us. 
we would appreciate the breadth of his love for us, the wideness of his mercy for us, a mercy that is wider than the greatest sea. We've just been singing that, haven't we? And so we would be grateful for how this rich and wide mercy of God covers even the likes of me and you. Friends, don't ever, how can I put this? Don't ever get bored with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't ever presume that it's, you know, it's a, for you and I to be included in this plan of salvation is, is the most precious thing you could ever know. It really is. It truly is. This week we, we come to the second section, verses 14 to 18, which further explains to us how this coming near to God was made possible for us. I just say up front, I know I could have preached this whole paragraph in one sermon. I could have with three points, those three sections. But the theology here is so fundamental to our identity, I've stretched it over three Sundays. So bear with me. I hope, I hope you get the, the value of us doing it that particular way. First of all, then, we're looking at the peace of Jesus Christ. The peace of Jesus Christ. Do you notice there how Paul changes his pronouns? Can I say that? Paul changes his pronouns. In verses 11 to 13, he refers to you Gentiles. You were separated. You who were once far off and so on and so forth. He, he changes from you to we, to us, to our. The pronoun changes to become plural, to become inclusive. He says, for he, the Lord Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and so on and so forth. Paul is writing here in very inclusive terms, calling you Gentiles and we Jews that Jesus is our peace. When Paul writes of the Lord Jesus there, he himself is our peace. In the Greek, the word he is emphatic. It's strong. Paul is wanting to stress and to emphasize he himself, Jesus Christ. In other words, our inclusion that we're talking about here, our reconciliation to one another, is all bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't find it in Judaism. I've heard of people who, you know, wanting to become Christians have first become a Jew. I've heard of that. We, we don't switch religion. We don't all move to Israel. We don't change our ethnicity. But we come to the person of Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. Usually we talk about Jesus bringing peace to us. Romans 5 verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. That verse uh, 
seems to present Jesus as the, as the mediator of our peace with God, that through Jesus we have this peace of, uh, uh, this relational peace with God. But, but here in Ephesians 2.14, Paul uh, presents Jesus in, in, a, in a somewhat different perspective. He says, Jesus himself is our peace. What does Paul mean by that? That Jesus himself is our peace. Well, first of all, what does he mean by peace? <laughs> what does he mean by peace in this context? We know, don't we, peace in the Bible is the term shalom. It's a classic Jewish word, shalom. In the widest possible sense, it means uh, complete wellness, uh, complete well-being, which obviously then includes our salvation and our relationship with God. It's to do with this, this wholeness in terms of our relationship with God and our relationship with, with one another, an all-consuming, all-pervasive shalom. What Paul is saying here is that not only does Christ bring that peace, but he is that peace. Jesus is the embodiment of of relational peace. You remember how we've just come through Christmas, we've read certain nativity verses, Isaiah 9 verse 6, how Jesus is described as a wonderful counselor and so on and so forth, and he's the prince of peace. In Micah 5, where we read of Jesus to be, or the Christ to be born in Bethlehem, we're also told that he would care for his people, verse 5, and he shall be their peace. He so, so Jesus brings peace, and he is peace. Here it's not primarily the peace with God that Paul is wanting to emphasize here, but the peace with each other. Jesus is the peace between Jews and Gentiles, making them one. He's the bond. He's the glue of peace, if I may say that. He's the bond of peace that... Paul will later tell these Christians to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in chapter 4, verse 3. Jesus is the peace that bonds believers together as one, regardless of our backgrounds. And we come from different backgrounds, don't we? I mean, look around you, quick, quick look over your shoulder. We're all different, very different. As you speak to one another, we recognize that difference. But Jesus binds us together in peace. Peace is a, a major theme in this paragraph. Four times Paul mentions it, verse 14, verse 15, twice in verse 17. Peace. And therefore, a major aspect of every local assembly of God's people, those who belong to this community of God's people, is peace. I haven't been to an Anglican service for a long time, but I remember going to one in Wooler. It was a funeral I attended, and halfway through, we were all told to stand up and show the sign of peace. And we shook hands with one another and said, hello, how are you? Lovely to see you and all that, you know, for five minutes. We conveyed in that way that there was peace among us because of Jesus. 
because of him, our Savior. Jesus is to be manifest in all our relationship here because he is that peace that binds us together. And of course, sometimes that bond can be hard to maintain. Sometimes instead of seeing peace in the church, we see bitterness and hostility and eventually we may even see division and separation again. And I stress that word again because before Christ bonded us together, we were separate. We had our little tribal groups but through faith in Jesus, he brought us together as one and bonded us together as one. If you remember how Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, certainly his first letter, you see how that church had a lot of disagreements, a lot of divisions among them. In a sense, Corinth was the first place to give off a sort of whiff of denominational differences. We live today, don't we, with all the labels of churches that you come across. What kind of church do you belong to? Well, we're a blah, 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 blah. We're a ism. <laughs> we're a, yeah, I won't go into it. But we're, people follow isms. In Corinth, there was isms. I follow Paul, some said. The first church of the Paulites there was danger of the church of Corinth becoming. And they would have separated from the first church of the Apollosites. I'm trying to figure out what the word was. I follow Apollos, some said. Looking for differences, looking for what divided them rather than what bonded them, what glued them together. The believers there had taken their focus off of Christ what they had done was they had de-emphasized him for over-emphasizing themselves. And wherever that happens, as church history shows, believers come apart. And you have the first church of so-and-so in one town, and in the same time, the second church of so-and-so, and in the same time, maybe the third church of so-and-so, because they've got smaller and smaller and smaller as they've broken up and thought, I don't agree with that bit, so I'm going to form another group, and all of that sort of stuff. How do believers with a, within a local church, how can we disagree with one another and yet still strongly love one another? How can we eagerly maintain this spiritual bond of peace we have within the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do this without just avoiding anything sensitive as though week after week we have to tiptoe around each other lest we stand on someone's precious eggshell? How do we do that? We do it by making Jesus Christ the focal point of all that we are. Even we as a church, I guess we have labels, don't we? We're Welbeck Road Evangelical Church. That's our label. 
Within our constitution, we are a Baptistic church. We are a Reformed church. We are a conservative church. We, we use all of these labels to describe ourselves to people. I'm going to the Banner of Truth conference, and there'll be people saying, so what kind of church is your church? Well, I'll have to mention three or four labels just to convey a, a, an impression of where we're coming from, you know? But friends, we're Christians. We're Christians. We bear the name of Christ, do we not? And that is what we have to keep bringing all our different opinions to the foot of, to Jesus Christ. And there are differences here among us. I know that, theological differences. But here we are together, aren't we? I hope not just physically sat on the same chair in the hall, as it were, the same hall, but we're here together because we all love Jesus Christ. He is our He's our common Savior. He's our one Savior. And yes, we may differ on this or that, but we together are following Him because He's our King, our Redeemer. Secondly, how has Jesus become our peace? Well, look at what Paul goes on to say. Jesus, who is our peace, has made us both, and those are the two groups, really, the Jews and the Gentiles, has made us both one. And we'll look at that word one at the very end. It's a brief point to make out. but And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's an important term that Paul uses there, the dividing wall of hostility. I don't know if you have a study Bible at home. I'd always recommend you get a good study Bible by the number. The ESV study Bible is quite unique in that it has lovely color, not photographs, but images included in it. And you'll find images of Herod's temple, for example, in Jerusalem. And what artists believe it looked like based on archaeology and historical accounts and so forth. Well, if you look at that image, you'll find that's what Paul had in mind as he wrote this letter. In the main section of the temple, I believe I've got a picture up for you. I think it should come up. There you go. In the main section of the temple, on the elevated area of the temple, there was an area for the priests an area for the ordinary Israelite men, and an area for the Israelite women. These three areas were enclosed by a wall and steps. They were there at the, at the central part of the temple complex. Outside of that was an area, and then there was another wall. And beyond that wall was the court of the Gentiles. That's where the likes of you and I would have had to stayed. We were kept out from drawing near to God because of that wall. This was the area beyond the wall. This was the area probably where Jesus drove out the money changers. You know, he had the, the, uh, the whip and, and drove them out because in that area, the Jews looked at the Gentiles and thought, well, we don't really need them here, so let's set up our market stalls there. Jesus drove them out in order that the Gentiles could draw near to God. That area for Gentiles was segregated off from the temple. It was a wall about a meter and a half high, 
it ran all the way around the temple. So as I say, if you were a Gentile, you had to stay on the Gentile side of the wall. And all the way around on the wall, there were signposts saying, no foreigners. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's what was written at certain places on signs around the wall. So, so this wall symbolized, verse 12, the alienation, the separation. That wall was a physical barrier to Jews drawing near to God. And Paul tells us here that Jesus has broken down that wall. Now, we don't read of that in Scripture. We don't find Jesus getting a sledgehammer, if I may say that. And just as he drove out the money changers, he then got to work on the wall. That wall wasn't physically broken down until 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple. So when Paul is writing this letter, that wall is physically still standing in the temple area. But that wall was spiritually demolished in around 30 AD when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. So yes, those warning signs of no foreigners were still there on the wall as Paul writes this letter. Those signs that still threaten Gentiles like us with death if we dare to go beyond the wall of hostility, those signs were still fastened up. They still warned of death. But after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was, those threats had no basis whatsoever. Why do I say that? Well, because Christ has made us both one, Paul writes. The Lord Jesus has opened up a new way to God, a single way by which everyone can come to the Father. And how does he do that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. How does that, sorry, what does that mean? You see this in our minds if you're thinking, maybe you're thinking of Matthew chapter 5 and where Jesus says, do not think I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. But Paul tells us Jesus has abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. Is this a, a contradiction, as they say in Scripture? Well, we have to step back and look at the context of these two passages for what Jesus says in Matthew 5 in context is absolutely true. And what Paul writes here in Ephesians 2 in context is also absolutely true. It's always the context that determines what the text means. And in Matthew 5, there Jesus is comparing the righteousness of the Pharisees with the righteousness of himself and of those who would follow him. Jesus upheld what we often call 
the moral aspect of the law. Eddie was talking to the kids just earlier about God giving Moses the law to transfer on to the people of Israel. What God gave Moses on those tablets were the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. There's the civic law that he gave later on down the hill, maybe, or back up, I can't remember. There's the moral law, the civic law, which was specifically for Israel, which no longer applied to us. And there was the ceremonial law, which you read of in Leviticus, all of those things for that time. Jesus here upheld the moral law. The moral law is still a standard for all God's people today. The Ten Commandments still stand for today, friends. Not nine of them, but ten of them. And we need to think about that and work that out. The Pharisees didn't see that. They had their own laws. They had their own traditions. But here in Ephesians 2, the, the context here is to do with what separates Jews from Gentiles. What separated them was this law of commandments expressed as ordinances. In other words, the ceremonial law. For example, their their, their circumcision, we've already looked at that in verse 11. Their sacrifices, their rules for ritual cleanness and so forth. We saw over Christmas how we talked, didn't we, about Mary when she was uh, ceremonially unclean after having given birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those were Jewish things, not Gentile things. Even the Jewish diet distinguished them from other people. That's why they, they weren't allowed to eat pork. Not because pork isn't tasty or anything like that, but primarily it was to distinguish them from them, Jews, Gentiles. It separated them. Every time they looked at their plate, they thought, I'm a Jew because look what I'm eating. I'm not like everybody else because look what's on my plate. Again and again, that's what they saw. But now, God has abolished all of that. That wall Christ has totally demolished by fulfilling all of it. Christ demolished it by becoming that perfect and final sacrifice for sin. For all sinners, whether you're from a Jewish background or whether you're from a Gentile background. So Jesus himself is the peace. He is the one who has made those old covenant Judaic ordinances, Jewish ordinances, obsolete. You read of that in Hebrews 8.13. They're now irrelevant. They're now no longer needed anymore because the Christ has come. Jesus now sets all his people apart as holy and distinct. Now it's not whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, but now whether you're in Christ and a Christian or you're outside of Christ and you're an unbeliever. That's the only two differences that now exist in this world. So Christ is what binds us together. 
He is the one who through his death on the cross and through our faith in him brings us together as one people. Whether you are a Jew or you're a Gentile, whether you are English or you're Iranian, whether you are African or you are Portuguese, whether you're Pakistani or you're Indian, whether you are Jew or you're Palestinian. But in Jesus Christ, we are one one. All that matters to us, all that should matter to us, friends, is Jesus. He is the only way for every sinner to come to God, to belong to God. Paul writes in Galatians 3, 28, again telling the Christians there, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you, he says. Colossians 3 verse 11, in this new life, he says, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, Paul writes, and he lives in all of us. Now, as we close, let me just quickly explain what Paul means, you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's our third and final point tonight. Let me me just reiterate, in Christ, every believer has been reconciled to God. Every Christian has been reconciled to God. Verses 4 to 10, verse 16. In Christ, believing Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled to each other. We've seen that this morning. Also, in Christ, Believing Jews and Gentiles have access to the one Father. We read from Isaiah 44 earlier, this one God, the one Father through the one Lord Jesus Christ. That is our continuing experience as we share together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We now have access to what Jews were promised But what is the one new man in place of the two? Verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. What is this single new thing that the Lord Jesus Christ has created through his death on the cross? It's the church. It's the church. This is it, friends. The church is it, as someone once said at a fraternal about what's the significance of the church. The church is it. This is precious. This is what God has been working towards. You, the church of Jesus Christ, the the household of God. And we'll go on next week, God willing, to look at those description that Paul gives to this one new man. These are all various titles you'll find in scripture for this one new man. They, they, They basically mean the same thing, this single entity, this single new community of redeemed sinners. 
but we're not two groups anymore. And maybe we need to think about that. Maybe some of us with our dispensational view of theology, there are not now two groups of saved people. There's one, one new man. There's not one group, and they're Gentiles, and they're called the church, and there's this other group, still Israel, and God's working in them, that that's not theologically correct. There are ethnical differences, of course, between cultures and nations. Of course there are. There's obviously social differences. There are sexual differences within the church. Men and women are still distinct. They're still different with different roles. But this reconciling work of Christ has abolished every single spiritual difference that exists, or this is the point, was believed to have existed between those who are now God's people. Friends, in Christ, all of us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all truly one, and we are the true children of Abraham. Remember Galatians 3.29, now that you belong to Christ, you, the church, are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. So again, what Christ has done supersedes all the labels we have grown up with so familiar to us, like Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. Now there is this one new distinguishing label, and that is Christian. Christian. Believer. In Christ. And the opposite of that is the opposite. Unbeliever. Pagan. Outside of Christ. Can I ask you, where are you this morning spiritually? We're about to close here. But where are you spiritually? I know you have an ethnic background. I, I see the differences amongst us. But where are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you a believer? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Because if you are, you are part of this, this phenomenal thing that God is doing. God's focus is on his church. His primary focus is on his people, his elect people from all the nations of the world and him reaching them and including them in this new community of God's people. Are you in this community, friend, through faith in Jesus Christ? I pray to God you would be, because you can be if you come to him through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this phenomenal truth, this glorious truth which is ours. We don't deserve anything of this, Lord. We deserve to be cast out far from you. But because of you, we have hope. Because of you, we have Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you so loved us, you sent your Son. Please give us understanding of these things, please. Help us to appreciate our need of him, not of religion, not of Welbeck Road primarily,
but of Jesus Christ primarily and bring us by faith to him. We thank you for this siren call this morning, this reminder that time is running out. This is urgent. This is a crisis in this room that we find Jesus Christ and we give ourselves to him. We ask for your help in that, we pray. And for his name's sake, amen.